Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. President Trump made waves by announcing he was nominating a longtime supporter to one of the two open seats on the Federal Reserve Board. Last Friday, the president confirmed an earlier Bloomberg News report and told reporters he selected Stephen Moore, a visiting fellow at the conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation, who also served as an economic advisor for the president's 2016 campaign. Stephen joined us for an interview later that day after the announcement. Bloomberg International economics and policy correspondent and Fed expert Michael McKee sat in on the interview, and we all began by asking Stephen if President Trump had formally offered him the job on the Fed board. Uh, he did, and it was, wow, well, that was the honor of my life um, when he called and asked me to do it. And, you know, you can't say no to the president, but I, I was really so, um, pr- I feel very privileged, frankly, to have this opportunity to do it. I, I will have to go through the Senate to be confirmed, so it's a, a, a long ro- road ahead. But um, he, he said, I have full confidence in you, and, and uh, I work with him in the campaign. I, he and I think a lot alike when it comes to economics. Do you worry that you might not be deemed ind- an independent voice on the Fed, as you are so closely aligned with the president? Well, no. I mean, I've always had an independent voice. I've got a 30-year track record, 35-year track record on economics. People can, you know, look at my record. And, uh, you know, I consider myself a growth hawk. So I think what I will really try to pursue and, and persuade the chairman of and work with the chairman to try to make sure that the America grows as fast as it can and that wages rise and that we have a, a, you know, a long period of prosperity through a sound monetary policy. Like Trump has done a, obviously a great job on, on tax reduction and uh, you know, deregulation and looks like we're going to get this trade deal done with China. If we have a sound monetary policy with stable prices on top of that, you know, I really believe we could have three to four percent growth for another five or six years. Uh, speaking of working with the chairman, you suggested a couple of months ago that uh, Chairman Jay Powell be fired and that the rest of the uh, Federal Reserve should be let go uh, for monetary policy incompetence. And you called the Fed the swamp in Washington. Are you going to be able to work with these people? You know, uh, that was probably written in a time of anger. And by the way, I think, you know, everyone would now acknowledge that what they did in December with the rate increase was a it was a very substantial mistake, and the Fed has, thank God, you know, reversed that and, and changed directions with respect to the rate increases. Um, so, look, I, no, I think that I, I have never actually met Chairman Powell, but I really look forward to working with him. I know he he wants high growth. He he can be a hero if we get our monetary policy right at the same time we have these very strong um, you know uh, pro growth measures on the you know fiscal side of the equation. So, you know, I. I don't want to be a disruptor. I want to be somebody who can really help uh, Chairman Powell and the others on that board to construct the best 
uh, pro-growth, stable price system that we can for this country. Well, you're not the only one who's criticized the chairman. The president himself has been very critical. And I'm wondering if he's putting you on the Fed board in order to be a check on Jay Powell, in order to preserve the administration's priorities. The only thing he told me is pursue policies that are good for the American economy and the American worker. You know, he's always said in every conversation I've had, I, you know, I care about wages. I want to make sure that middle class workers are doing better. I care about jobs. He, he didn't really mention anything about, you know, um, you know, differing with with Chairman Powell one way or the other. What's your view on what the Federal Reserve's mandate is? Because um, the Fed chair had spoken about the overarching goal of sustaining the economic expansion uh, first and then bringing up uh, full employment and managing inflation. What's your view on that? And, and do you think it's at odds with what the Fed is pursuing? You know, I, look, I'm for growth. I think I think the potential for the U.S. economy is three and a half to four percent long-term growth, and with the right set of policies, not just on the monetary side, but also on the fiscal and regulatory and budget side, that we could actually do that. Um, so I don't know that I'm. You know, by the way, I'm kind of new to this game, frankly. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be on a steep learning curve myself about how the Fed operates, how the Federal Reserve makes its decisions, and this is a real exciting opportunity for me. So it's hard. For for me to say, you know, what my even my role will be there, uh, assuming I get confirmed by the Senate. Let's presume, though, that if you're looking from what the Fed could do right now to hit this three and a half to four percent growth that you think is attainable, what does it need to do? Is it dovish for longer? Do we have no rate hikes for the whole of 2019? Do we even see a rate cut coming before a hike? So, you know, my, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week um, that basically spelled out a monetary policy that I think Donald Trump liked, and I think it might be one of the reasons that he asked me to serve. And what I pointed out, look, I'm not a, I'm for a stable dollar. I think the main, when, you know, in fact, when you were asking me about the dual mandate of the Fed, I think the most important thing that the Fed can do is maintain a, a currency that remains stable and strong over time. And so my fear is that we've seen slight deflation in the economy over the last uh, four or five months. And you see that with the commodity prices that have been falling. You just mentioned the fall in the oil price. But it's not just oil prices. It's, all, it's on, of all the commodities, they've fallen by about 8 to 10 percent over the last four months. That is not inflation. That's deflation. That, so I'm not saying that's not a dovish policy. It's a it's a policy that says let's make sure that, you know, because deflation can be as harmful for an economy as inflation has. And so I'm worried more on the deflation deflation side right now than the inflation side. Well, there's no real deflation in the economy by any price measure other than yeah, a few is. commodities. The commodities uh, so, are falling. And, and, that, and the Fed is probably not going to adopt a commodity price target. So how yeah. do you get a stable dollar, particularly if that's not part of the Fed's mandate? You once were an advocate of the gold standard. Are you still? I've never actually been um, a gold standard guy. I'm, I'm open-minded to it. My good friend Steve Forbes uh, has just written a book on, on the gold standard. But I'll, I'll just challenge you on this. I mean, if you don't think we have deflation, then why is it that, you know, 30 commodity prices have fallen by 8%? I mean, that can really almost all, only be explained by a, a dollar that is too scarce. And my view is, look, Trump has created this incredible pro-growth environment. You have huge global demand for dollars as we become the NBA 
equity of the world and everybody wants to invest in the United States, the Fed, in my opinion, in that kind of environment, if they're, if they're raising rates, pulling dollars out of the economy, that will, that will create a deflation. And I, I don't know, may, maybe you, can, you said there's no signs of deflation. How do, you, how do you account for the big reduction in commodity prices? Well, you look at inflation as, uh, or deflation as a broad general move in prices, and we're not seeing a broad general move in prices. As a matter of fact, the Fed's been struggling to get uh, inflation off of uh, the 1.5 to 1.7, 1.9 range for quite some time. So it, it seems uh, fairly stable. But uh, beyond that, I'm kind of wondering. Um, by the way, they're a little bit under you, their target. They've been pretty consistently under their, you know, their their target of two percent. So. Uh, you know, look, we could argue about you, whether, well, they're, you, whether they're too tight or too not. I, and I don't think that's really well, that's the point the issue here. for the markets yeah. is are yeah. they too tight or not? Uh, do you think that they should be cutting interest rates at this point? You know, I'm not sure about that. It's a you know, I have to take a closer look at it. And, you know, by the way, one of the things I want to do is really talk to the people at the Fed. They've got, you know, several, uh, you know, you know, dozens and scores of very great economists over there. I want to hear their, you know, the one of the things that will be really uh, interesting for me is is to hear the case, look at their data and then help uh, make the decision about whether whether we're too tight or too loose. I want to talk to you about uh, the debt level. You had said that you are a growth hawk. Uh, there's obviously a lot of uh, fiscal hawks uh, right now in mm -hmm. Washington as well. You were extremely critical when the national debt had reached $18 trillion uh, when President Obama was in office. It's now at $22 trillion. Are we still, in your words, hopelessly over leveraged? And if so, what's the prescription? I've re I look, I've spent my whole career since 19, I think, 83, being one of the biggest budget hawks in Washington. I mean, you can go back and look at my record. I've, I've recommended, you know, trillions of dollars of cutting waste and inefficiency out of government. You know, we do have way too much spending. I think almost everyone acknowledges that. Last year, we had virtual record levels of, of revenues, even with the tax cut. So I don't think it's a revenue problem. I think it is an overspending problem. Um, and so I, I stick to that. I think we need to reform our entitlement programs. I think we need to find ways. Yeah, I love Donald Trump's idea of cutting every agency by, you know, 5% next year. We got to bring those expenditures down because, you know, running trillion dollar deficits for as far as I can see is not sustainable. How global should the Fed be? Oh, Look, you know, one of the reasons I think we've seen a fall off in growth, um, you know, especially this quarter, has been that the U.S. economy is being weighed down by the global slowdown in growth. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, the, the Fed should be paying very close attention to what's happening globally. You know, we want to see global growth increase because we can't carry the whole world economy on our shoulders. So, you know, in terms of Brexit, um, you know, I, I hope for a good resolution of that where the Brits can can remove themselves from the European Union, but they can still have a free trade arrangement with the Europeans. That would be the best for, I think, both sides of the equation. And boy, it sure looks kind of ugly right now, but I hope there's a good resolution to that. And from your perspective, in terms of the China trade deal, you've been speaking with Trump to a certain extent. Do you know if we're any closer to that and indeed whether China might continue to be such a headwind for the U.S. economy? Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Um, you know, I, I spoke to the president a couple of weeks ago about this, and he was very optimistic about the chances of getting this deal done. It's tough. I mean, it's tough slogging yeah, because the Chinese are very difficult to negotiate with. Uh, I, I've always said that I think Trump is fighting the right fight here, that, you know, we have to we've, we've been in an abusive trade relationship with China for a number of years now. And I mean, think about the implication if Trump can pull this off and can get this trade deal done where they, they Chinese reduce their tariffs on American goods 
goods because they're three times higher than our tariffs, and we can do something about the intellectual property theft that's uh, endemic in in, uh, in uh, China right now. I think it would be hugely positive for not just the U.S. economy, but China and the rest of the world. So there's a lot hinging on this deal, and I'm feeling more confident than ever that it's going to get done. Uh, we've got to ask you about the balance sheet, since everybody in the markets <laughs> is concerned about that these days. You were an opponent of quantitative easing. Uh, are you an opponent of keeping a balance sheet that's uh, going to be, as the chairman said this week, maybe three and a half trillion dollars? You know, I'm going to, uh, to be honest with you, I'm going to have to study up on this one and see, you know, I want to, I, I can't wait to listen to, you know, again, what these economists over at the Fed have to say about this and what the chairman has to say. They know much more about it than I do, frankly. So I'm going to reserve judgment on that because I don't have the full knowledge that I need to, to, to you know, but look, over time, obviously, we want to reduce that balance sheet and not have these massive uh, amounts of, uh, of debt on, on the Fed balance sheet. There's the Fed's balance sheet and then there is the government's balance sheet. Stephen, I want to <laughs> ask a question for you from a Bloomberg customer. Uh, Ten years ago, Republicans obviously very upset about deficits, saying it was unsustainable. The last tax cut um, at the end of 2017 obviously increased the deficits as well. What's your stand? Well, I helped write the tax cut, so I'm obviously, I think it's a, been a tremendous success. You know, you look at how well the economy has done, it, you know, the, the amazing recovery we've had in this country, the best labor market in 50 years. The, you know, we've got, we had, you know, before the rate increases, we had 4% growth with full employment, with no inflation, the most beautiful picture. So I'm really proud of what we've done with that tax cut. We're seeing nice increases in business investment. Um, it's not an accident that this economy has done so well. It's because in no small part because because of the business tax reductions that have made, uh, you know, put more into the hands of the businesses so they can hire more workers, invest more. Um, so I, I think it's fantastic. I think, you know, revenues, I'd like to see revenues coming in at a, at a faster pace. But as I said before, we've got near revenue, uh, near record revenues. We just need to get the spending under control. And, you know, frankly, neither party seems to be too interested in that right now. Although my buddy, uh, Russell Boyd, who put together the president's budget, uh, there's some really good ideas in that budget that would trim the deficit, and I wish that Congress would act on them. This week, Bloomberg also hosted its annual Equality Summit, and we caught up with some of the attendees. Actress Reese Witherspoon did not think Hollywood was telling enough women's stories, or even the right ones. So in 2016, she began her own production company, Hello Sunshine, with the aim of better telling women's stories and highlighting female artists. We spoke with the company's CEO, Sarah Hardin, and began by asking her how its mission has changed after the advent of Me Too. A lot has changed culturally. I think when Reese founded the company, it was prior to the current Me Too and Time's Up conversation. And it's really an outgrowth of her 20 years as a producer, um, producing uh, movies like Wild and Big Little Lies. Um, a lot of them drawn from incredible narrative fiction by, by, by female authors and really about how do we create sets of narratives that put women at the centre of the story, driving the action, complex narratives. And I think when we met, it was a feeling that stories are now being told on all sorts of platforms, whether it's podcasts or social, as yeah. well as film and television, um, audio. And, um, and there was a hunger for women, uh, as we've seen with the success of these of narratives, to hear stories representing diverse perspectives and diverse voices. And I think with that, um, 
you know, we met and, um, and sort of Hello Sunshine was born out of, out of her original vision. So are these narratives being received, being produced, being distributed as niche products or as mainstream products with the kind of big budget that you would reserve for something that carries a supermodel, uh, sorry, superhero? You know, it's all across. We, we talk about where about premium storytelling that puts women at the center of the narrative. And premium for us is on brand. Um, but that's everything from feature films, TV shows uh, distributed to streamers, um, shows like Big Little Lies. Uh, we've got Little Fies everywhere about to go into production. We're shooting the morning show with, with uh, for the Apple platform right now. It also includes podcasts. And we think of the daily so the daily conversation we're having on uh, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as a form of storytelling. And with all of them, what drives those is not only elevating diverse voices, um, but also the process of how we bring those stories to life. We we think it's a crowded media landscape. Mm. Um, to be excellent and get, and get cut through, you have to find that emotional connection. And I think consumers are smart and they can smell authentically authored stories. And so we're as focused on what happens behind the camera in our writers' rooms, in our boardroom, and in our the way we're building this company from the ground up in our employee base to make sure that we authentically author the stories that we, like everyone else, are looking to find uh, an, an audience and establish a set of emotional connections with an audience. We were just looking at pictures there of the Apple event earlier this week. And as you said, there's going to be the morning show, which is going to be produced for them. There's Big Little Lies. It's on HBO. As you're mentioning, Hulu's going to have little fires everywhere. Amazon's got Daisy Jones and The Six. These are all ones that you've produced and, and put out to the world. Do you care which audience picks it up? Does it just go to the highest bidder? How do you end up deciding which program is the right fit for where and, and how does that all work? You know, I think the distribution lands landscape is complex and we feel there's the right story for the right home. I think these platforms have different characteristics and we're also distributing stories. We have a Hello Sunshine On Demand channel. We shot two unscripted series for last year. We're distributing podcasts across the whole podcast landscape. We've got original short form um, that we're distributing via YouTube. All of these platforms have characteristics. They have an environment. We think context is important in the way you share stories and talent has a perspective too. And I think there's such a thing as the right story for the right home. And that's what we try and do, balancing all of those interests and perspectives. And ultimately, you know, our goal is just to, is to bring the right stories to life in the right way. You're clearly working on a lot of different things at once. You're very busy. What part of it is a challenge still? I mean, we've gotten better in terms of representation on screens, whether it's a big screen or the small screen, the little screen. But what part still needs to be improved upon within that whole process? You know, I... I want to make all the stories. I, I, I think there's so much opportunity and so much need. And I think we're still a small company. We're, we're two years in. And I think we have to be very selective and intentional. I think our mission um, is a set of filters that's very clear about the types of stories we want to tell. But I mean, we have an energized team. There's a lot we want to do. And so I think it's still very hard to make one great TV show or run mm. great social series or engage an audience. And I think for us, it's staying really intentional and, and really, really trying to bring stories to life that we think are original and distinctive um, and also mm. be very thoughtful about the voices that we include in making those stories. Do you think the echo chambers are reducing do you think that or do you think that still content goes to those that want to hear it and desire to hear it rather than should hear it and perhaps are we are we are we still all 
focusing in on what we want to hear and what to see and what to talk about. You know, I think the big shift here is consumers are in control and they vote with their attention. Um, and its distribution is pretty ubiquitous. And I do believe that great stories find the audience that they were meant for. Not, not every story is for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in the power of that. And I think if we are intentional and thoughtful and we create an environment that bring great creative voices to the table and very, very intentionally bring creative voices that have um, have been marginalised from a lot of our mm. storytelling processes. Um, there's an audience out there that's that's hungry. It's time that our boardrooms and our writers' rooms matched the profile of the audience in this country and around the world who are who are the consumers. And I think the consumers are going to continue to vote with to vote with their attention and their dollars. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Adobe is trying to broaden its reputation and reach beyond just being the Photoshop provider. And this week, the company launched a software platform with a bit of inspiration from one of its chief rivals, Salesforce. Adobe announced it was developing a software system called Experience Platform before its summit in Las Vegas. CEO Shantanu Narayan joined us from the summit, and we began by asking why they were so eager to take on Salesforce. When you think about Adobe, we really are uh, focused on two growth initiatives, empowering people to create, which has been the heritage of the company, and enabling businesses to transform. Digital disruption is front and center. We were the first company uh, to invent the digital marketing category so that we could bring art and science together. And we believe that the next generation of enterprise requires what we call the customer experience management category to evolve, where the leaders in that space, and when you have a vision for how enterprises need to deal with consumers, I think it's up to you to innovate in that space. Chantal, when you guys first sort of met, moved into this space a few years ago, and you started this subscription model, you guys were kind of out there on your own. You were sort of out there on a plank, and it was a sort of a business model that was derided, a business model that eventually you were sort of vindicated on. But now there's so much more competition in this space. Everyone is essentially replicating what you guys were doing. And I'm wondering, how do you stay ahead of those companies, not just the sales forces, but really everyone out there, the Oracles, the IBMs, that are all basically doing exactly what you're doing? Well, I think you were referring to the creative uh, business first when we moved that to the subscription model and that business just continues to attract new customers. Uh, we have a massive opportunity ahead of us when you think about what's happening with new media types, new consumption devices. As it relates to the enterprise software category, we process over 200 trillion transactions. We're the clear leader in that category. And when you think about every enterprise wanting to have an engaging digital experience, we actually think that it's coming to where Adobe is at its strongest, namely in enabling people to create that content, manage that content, measure that content, and ultimately deliver that content because consumers like you and me, we're increasingly engaging with travel, with retail, with hospitality, uh, using a mobile device or using a screen. And that's what Adobe does. We produce the world's content. Shantanu, uh, your stock has obviously done phenomenally well riding this wave 
of data and marketing and e-commerce just exploding categories. But with that has come overall for the industry lots of concerns about data privacy and users' rights to privacy and their own data. Do you think that regulations are called for in terms of the use of data and what would Adobe be willing to support? Well, I think that's a really great question. And even today at our summit, we talked about our privacy principles and how, whether it's trust and transparency or user control in terms of what people are collecting on their behalf, has to be absolutely front and center. And so we believe that the commitment and trust that every enterprise makes with its consumers needs to be spelt out on the web. That's certainly best practice. All of our products are what we call privacy by design enabled, uh, but as it relates to the biggest commitment that exists, I still continue to think it exists between an enterprise and the consumer, and the consumer will ultimately decide whether or not they're okay with whatever enterprises are doing with their data. Vishantanu, returning to your discussion about what's happening in terms of privacy, in terms of the focus on the consumer, how much are you trying to navigate the regulatory environment in general? Do you think the regulation is coming your way in the United States? We've seen it impacted in Europe today. Europe once again siding with, well, content makers, the <laughs> publishers, the, the music creators, rather than the Facebooks and the Googles. What do you think will happen in the United States in terms of regulation, and are you prepared for it? We absolutely are. In fact, when GDPR was issued last May, what happened was that every enterprise uh, came to Adobe to ask for our advice on how they could navigate uh, the GDPR requirements and ensure that the Adobe solutions that they're using actually meet all of those privacy regulations. Uh, one important distinction that I think is important is that unlike a lot of other companies, all the data that we're collecting is actually on behalf of the enterprise. Uh, we don't sell data, that's not uh, part of our business model. And so uh, it's really all about the first party data that a company like Bloomberg, for example, has in terms of what consumers, how they want to interact with you. And so since we are restricted to that, we feel we're not impacted by some of the other regulations, but all of these uh, are actually catalysts for people coming to Adobe and saying, can you help us navigate through this uh, requirements? Uh, Shantanu, you're in a pretty healthy spot right now with your company. Any plans for uh, acquisitions, large or small? We just did uh, two fairly uh, sizable acquisitions for us. Uh, we acquired a company called Magento uh, in the e-commerce space recently with the whole idea of making every uh, experience personal and every experience shoppable. And so adding e-commerce was an important criteria. The other uh, big investment that we made recently is in a company called Marketo. And what Marketo does is B2B marketing. I think the move online was clearly driven by B2C companies, but we like to say that the distinction between B2B companies and B2C companies, if you're in banking, you have both commercial banking and consumer banking, and so what Marketo allows us to do, it's probably the largest acquisition in terms of dollars that Adobe has done in its history, enables us to have this comprehensive B2B and B2C platform for our marketers. And so we're very excited with the portfolio that we have, and now it's really about organic innovation within the company at this stage. Uh, final question here. Do you see any signs of weakness? I mean, in the overall economy, because obviously 
The uh, corporate spending, IT spending, particularly on software and the cloud, has been one of the absolute bright spots of the last several years with so much concern about a recession or a recession coming the next couple of years. Any uh, visibility into that from your vantage point? You know, our business continues to perform really quite well on the creative side and the document side. You're seeing everybody move from inefficient paper-based processes to automated uh, processes using PDF. And so PDF is clearly a catalyst for enabling that. Uh, the amount of content that's being created is exploding and we're in the sweet spot of that and every business is thinking about how to engage digitally with customers. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we haven't seen any sign of weakness, but we continue to think that we're in the sweet spot of the technology trends that are driving uh, global industry today. We also spoke with another Bloomberg Equality Summit speaker, Will Packer. Will is a film producer and the founder and president of Packer Media. He has producer credits on 28 films that have together grossed more than $1 billion at the box office, including Girls Trip, Ride Along, Think Like a Man, and Straight Outta Compton. We began by asking him about his new upcoming movie, Little, which features an African-American female director, writer, and cast, and how the conversation about inclusion in Hollywood is changing. Um, so that movie's not out yet. It's coming out in a yep. couple of weeks. You know what's interesting is that um, at the end of the day, Hollywood is a business, right? And so everything is driven by the economics of the business. And what has happened is that as people such as myself have involved more inclusive and diverse voices, they have made more money. Those projects have been more successful because audiences have been more responsive to voices, to content that has multiple entry points and different perspectives. And so I am somebody that has always embraced that in my career. I think it's a responsibility for me being an African-American filmmaker, being in the seat in which I sit. But the reality is that the business is responding to the fact that the economics have been very favorable to projects that feel more diverse and more inclusionary. There's this great documentary that out that's out called This Changes Everything. And it's sort of an ironic name because we've had this moment a bit before when it comes to females in, in the business. Thelma and Louise was meant to be This Changes Everything. Then it was yeah. a league of their own. And then, you know, the hi historical figures in NASA was meant to be like a monumental moment. Uh -huh. of hidden women. figures. Hidden yes. figures. Right. But it never quite changes. Do you think that legal action is ever needed? Or do you think that the bottom line will eventually speak for itself? Well, you know, what happens is that you have moments of change, pops of change, right? When you have kind of like a wave of change is when the world is changing. Hollywood is only following, again, what the consumers want, right? And so when you have films like Hidden Figures or Black Panthers or some of my works that have African-Americans or people of color in front and behind the screen and they are hugely successful, that's not going away anytime soon. So I think we're at a place where you're seeing real sea change. I think that this is something that you will continue to see because, not because the industry woke up and said, we now see how important this is and we want to you know, be about social messaging, but because consumers have said this is the kind of content we want to consistently support. Remind the audience of your successes thus far. We've got Girls Trip, Ride Along, yes. Straight Outta Compton, one of my favorites. But yeah. what sort of viewing figures are we seeing on these? What kind of what? Viewing figures you're seeing. Oh, not good. I mean, Girls Trip was the first uh, film to cross $100 million that was uh, produced, directed, and written by African Americans, and it ended up with, you know, 140 worldwide. Night School was the, the biggest comedy of last year. It was a movie with Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually have the top comedies of 17 and 
18. Um, not top black comedies, not top urban comedies. I got the top comedies, right? And so that means that something I'm doing is resonating with audiences and other people are paying attention. Right. That's the thing that's important. At the end of the day, the business will drive the social messaging because if the business works, it makes it a lot easier to say, yes, we should be putting women in front and behind the camera, you know, in positions of power, people of color in positions of power. If the economics support it, then people like me, it's easy to sell that in those types of rooms. Right. It needs to make business sense for everyone to sign on and they'll That's do it correct. even if they're reluctant to do it. Talk a little bit about outside investors and how how much they're driving some of the change, because certainly you talk about how there's uh, more willingness to to be more inclusionary. And that comes from the business part of it. But right. the money has to be there already. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're seeing is that um, outside uh, investors, you know, look, Hollywood has always been something, a sexy, shiny object for people that that aren't in the industry to want to get in, to toe dip, to to try it out. Um, look, it's still, a, you know, a very uh, speculative business. But at the end of the day, I think that you do have people that are finding films like the type of content we're, co we're talking about as interesting entry points. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you can make a, a product for a number, for a very efficient number, then the economic model makes sense. And so what I have had success with, even though I've been in the studio system for a very long time, is making projects for a very specific number for my core audience. And then when an audience outside of that core says, oh, we're interested, we want, for Girls Trip to make what it made, it wasn't just a movie that only black women went to see. Yeah. Audiences of all shapes and sizes and stripes went to see that movie. And so as I've been able to do that, I've been able to have studios support my films, but that means that private investors, all they want to do is do, fill the gaps that the studios aren't filling. And they want to follow the trends that the studios have set and that audiences are setting. Money talks when it comes to this business. All the time, yeah. with every business, success. absolutely. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.